Good morning, Christ Church. How you guys doing today? You guys sounded so beautiful. I just love, I love Christmas music, and I love to hear a congregation who is joyfully singing that music together. So uh, I, I wanted to begin with a statement that I think probably all of us would agree with, and it's this. If you pull off something impressive, it just feels good, doesn't it? And, and so especially, you know, if it was hard and you tried before and you failed, or uh, maybe it was something that not many people do, or, you know, you ran the marathon, you, you conquered the mountain, you pulled off that presentation, you did some, you know, sick dance move that you didn't know you could do and you did it or whatever. Uh, but but if, you full, if you pull off something impressive, it just feels good. And, and I think we'd also agree that if someone saw it, it feels even better, Right? I think, I think um, this is true, of course, for kids. You know, whenever they do something impressive, they're always asking, Daddy, Mom, did you see it? You know, your aunt, your uncle, uh, brothers, did you guys see that, you know? And, uh, and it's, true for, it's true for adults as well. We like it. We, we like to be seen when we do something impressive. I, I remember I was out uh, surfing just a couple months ago, and I was out actually surfing with uh, a couple of my daughters, and I dropped into this wave, and I pulled into a barrel, which is just a great experience when you're surfing. And, um, and, and I haven't, you know, I don't surf that often these days, not nearly as much as I ought to or should, uh, if I'm going to be a good Christian. Um, but but um, the, the thing clamped on me, but it was, st- it was just like this thrilling, amazing experience. And I popped my head up out of the water and I looked around to see if anybody had seen. And then I got out of the, the water and uh, my daughter, Lucy, she said, Dad, did you get a barrel? I'm like, yeah, you saw, you know? And I just thought the tables were turned. And now I was wanting affirmation from my children about seeing something. Of course, one of the great advantages of social media is you can actually document and carefully curate all of your impressive experiences. And if you put together a really great outfit or you go on a great vacation or, uh, or you know, you're just doing something that's kind of impressive, you could document it and put it out there and you can even get likes. And uh, uh, neurologists will tell us that there is dopamine that's released in your brain when somebody likes something on Instagram. And so it gets us coming back for more and more. And, and so, of course, all of us want to be noticed, we want to be liked, we want to be seen. And there are few things in life, right, that, that feel worse, that make you feel more terrible than when you feel unseen or unnoticed or that nobody cares. Or maybe you look out at everyone else and it seems like other people are noticed. They have a voice. They want to be heard. But nobody sees you. Nobody wants to listen to you. Nobody pays attention to you. And, you know, sociologists, psychologists, and our, and our best theologians will tell us that, that we are hardwired deep down inside to, to be loved and, and to know that we are worthy of love and belonging. And I think if you scratch below the surface of, of in some ways, kind of silly ways in which we're self-presenting, uh, we're talking about the thing we just did that was impressive, uh, those moments when we're hoping they noticed or they saw, I think if you scratch below the surface, I think what you'll find is that all of us as humans have a fundamental need to know that we are worthy of love and belonging. And again, uh, there are few things in the world that, 
make you feel devastated and almost, do I even want to keep going on in life if we just feel like we are not worthy of love and belonging? People don't care. They don't notice. They don't see. Now, uh, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes here, but uh, we began a series a couple weeks ago, or last week, I should say, called Hope Came Quietly, and, and, and we're looking together at, at the, the quiet ways in which the light of the world broke into the darkness on that first Christmas morning. And we're engaging with some of the classic stories surrounding the birth of Christ, and we're seeing how the hope that God birthed into the world on that first Christmas morning can bring hope and light into our own hearts and lives. And what I want to suggest to you today is that the story that we're going to look at uh, can can, can reveal to us, can help us see new and fresh ways in which the hope that we can be seen and known and loved can be met through the hope that was birthed into the world on that first Christmas morning. Now, it's going to take a little bit for us to get there, so let's just jump right into the text. So where we pick up our story today, a young peasant girl is visited by an angel. Look at what it says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So uh, Gabriel shows up, and Gabriel is something of a celebrity angel. He's there at all of the most important epic-making events in Israel's history. And so so this is Gabriel, and here he shows up. and, And where does he show up? Well, the text tells us he's in Nazareth. Now, the the town of Nazareth was something of Nowheresville. Uh, Nazareth uh, was not a place you'd ever want to visit or go on vacation. Nazareth was the place that you would stop through to get gas or maybe to get a Slurpee or some Takis or something to get back on the road before you get to the location where you want to go for your vacation. So Nazareth was something uh, of Nowheresville. It's like one of these podunk towns uh, surrounded by feedlots and whatnot. And, uh, and that's Nazareth. And, and, and who's living there? Well, the village of Nazareth was quite small. There was maybe three or 400 village people, uh, peasants, uh, day laborers, subsistence farmers, masons, carpenters, those kinds of people. And, and among the, this group of peasant villagers, there is a young woman, a virgin, who's betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph, and her name is Mary. Now, when, when you hear Mary, what kind of images come to mind? You know, throughout church history and across the globe, uh, cultures and peoples have presented Mary artistically. She is arguably the most depicted woman in art throughout human history. And, uh, and when she's depicted, she's almost always depicted as royalty. And uh, she's got some sort of halo or crown, and there's some glory and, uh, and about her. But, but basically, she looks like a queen. And, and on one level, uh, those kind of artistic depictions get it right, because Mary, of course, does have glory. She is something of a queen, as it were. But on another level, it is out of step with the historical reality of who Mary was. So Mary, Mary, Mary was a young woman. She was uh, a part of a tired, oppressed people. She was living on the the very fringes of the Roman Empire, uh, 
a couple few years back, uh, a, a young artist was commissioned by the Catholic Church to actually create a depiction of Mary for Catholic textbooks in schools that might give a little bit more of a realistic depiction of who Mary was. And this one captures it. It's, uh, she's a young uh, maiden, you know, a young, uh, just quiet young woman in a, in, a, in a small town village. Mary likely is somebody you wouldn't have noticed. Uh, she, she wouldn't have had a voice. Uh, very few people would have cared what she had to say. Some of you can relate to that. You feel like, I, I, I don't have a voice. I'm not seen. I, people, don't, people notice, a lot of people out there, people don't notice me. And that was Mary. Mary was unnoticed. She was unseen. Uh, she might have been the person at, at the party who you, 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 you were talking to, but, but you were looking past her to the person you really wanted to talk to. Uh, this, this, was, this was Mary. She was unnoticed. She was unseen. But in our story, God notices and God sees. And in our story, Mary is the one who God sends this archangel, this glorious warrior of light, Gabriel, to, to bring a message. And look at what Gabriel says. He says, greetings, earthling, you know? The, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. I mean, nobody was more shocked by those words than Mary. Could you imagine? You know, she's, she's like, nobody, like, what? what? <laughs> like, the, the angel flies past, you know, the, the, all of the, the, the affluent and, and wealthy and powerful people in Rome and in, even in Jerusalem and, and way out onto the outskirts of this little, quiet, small village of peasants and here is where the angel shows up and speaks, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And, uh, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might have been. And then the angel spoke and he said again, the first words that the angel learns in angel training school, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God has selected you, the angel says, to be the one who bears the light of the world that will illumine the darkness. And he goes on, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, of course, Mary at this point is utterly confused. She's just like, what the, like who, what, how, you know? And, um, and, and now this news. And, and, and Mary, Mary is a young Jewish girl, and she knows what this news means. She grew up from as, as, as early as she could remember hearing the story about King David, about, about that time when, when David said, oh, uh, he, goes to, he goes to Nathan the prophet, he says, hey, uh, I wanna build a house for God. And, and Nathan goes and, and comes back and he, he has a message from God for David. He says, look, David, uh, God says you can't build him a house. Actually, the heaven of heavens cannot contain the infinite fullness that is God anyway. But instead, God, who is the infinite fullness of grace and gift, is going to build you a house. And then he said this. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you 
and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for me and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He says to David, I'm gonna build you a house and from your lineage, in your lineage, a son is gonna be born and he is gonna be raised up and he is going to rule over the final eternal kingdom and of his reign, there will be no end. This was spoken a thousand years about before Mary. And Mary had heard this, just like her parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had heard this story. And this story fueled the, 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 their hopes when the embers of hope had grown low in their hearts because of the long night of exile. It was this promise that continued to fuel their hopes. And, and throughout the, the next several hundred years, the, the ancient prophets would come and build out this hope. And, and the prophet Isaiah, in one of the most memorable passages, speaking of this son who would come and rule over the eternal kingdom of David, said this, that this son would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Could you imagine that? A government and peace that would know no end. And on the throne of David and over his king, don't we need peace in our world right now? And of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. Promises like this and hundreds of others had loaded down the nation of Israel. It fueled the hopes of young peasants in the villages who knew the sting of oppression just about better than anyone else. Mary knew that. And she hears now the voice of the angel. This long-awaited king, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the one who would sit on David's throne is finally gonna be born. And get this, Mary, who is gonna be the one who would bear this king? It is you. And let's just note well, when God chooses a queen mother for the messianic king, God selects a nobody from nowheresville. You know, when God chooses the one who will be the mother of the very king over every king, when God chooses the one who, 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 who will be the mighty God ruling over all of creation, when God chooses one to be in the language of some of the ancient church fathers, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, who does God select from all of the human, from every, God could choose everyone. There's one person that's chosen in this moment from all of human history to know the honor and the glory of bearing in her body the, the very eternal son of God. Who does God choose? Note well, he chooses one who in the world's eyes, not in God's eyes, but in the world's eyes, according to the kingdoms of this world, is a nobody who is unnoticed, who is ignored, who is left out. God chooses a nobody from nowheresville. And this is so beautiful. But for Mary, it's just confusing because, you know, she's obviously sharp, she's intelligent, and she's practical. And so she asks, how's this gonna be since I'm a virgin? She's like, look, let's, let's get the brass tacks, angel. I, I'm betrothed, which is sort of like an intensified form of engagement, 
but we've not yet consummated the marriage. I'm still a virgin. How, how can this be? And the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And then the angel said, for nothing will be impossible with God. But a virgin birth, of course, sounds impossible to us, doesn't it? I mean, um, Larry King, years ago, you know, the great interviewer who's interviewed everybody practically in the world, was once asked if he could interview anybody from history past, who would it be? And he answered, it would be Jesus Christ. And, And what would you ask him? He said, I would ask him if he was virgin born because the answer to that question would define history for me. But let's talk for a minute about the virgin birth. I mean, what is the virgin birth about anyway? And I know some of us were like, what, isn't that something from like Greek mythology? I mean, was it this from the Greek myths? You know, the gods would come down and, you know, intermarry or whatever with the people and there'd be, you know, and, and, and someone says, and, and wasn't, wasn't Anakin Skywalker virgin born? I mean, like, where did they get this? Did, did, did Luke get this from George Lucas and the prequels? And like, like um, listen, neither Luke nor any of the early Christians drew their understanding of the world or of God or of humanity from the Greeks. No, the idea of the virgin birth is derived not from Greek mythology, but from Jewish creational theology. Now, just a minute on the virgin. Can we just talk for about the virgin birth? Just for, this isn't the main point of the sermon, but I just think we need to talk for a minute about this. Can we do that? Give me some feedback. I just need to be encouraged. So listen, in Jewish understanding, the God of Israel was the author, the very generative source of life. All that is living, our life is on donation from the very infinite and eternal source of life, which is God. And so the the ancient Christian scriptures open like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then this, the earth was formless and void and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And the results of the brooding, hovering work of the spirit was what? It was biological and physical life. And then in Genesis 2, God forms the human creature from the dust of the earth and he breathes into the human's nostrils the breath or the ruach or the spirit. And the the result of the life-giving spirit into the the creature of dust was that the the human became a living being. In other words, the the spirit of God breathes and, and, and the result is biological and physical life. Listen, in scripture, life is a miracle. All of life, human life and physical life and all of life is the result of God's spirit. It is, all things are ultimately contingent upon the infinite and eternal ground of existence and being, the very infinite ocean of existence and love that is God. God, our our God is a God of absolute being and infinite life, and he donates to all else 
physical life and existence. And so when we read here about the spirits hovering over the womb of Mary, the spirit will come upon you, the power of the most shy will overshadow you. It is to bring an echo in our mind that takes us back to God's creative act. And here to say, God's spirit is moving again to bring about new creation. It is to take us back to Adam to say that now the spirit of God is breathing again in the womb of Mary to bring about a second and better Adam who will bring about not the fall, but the redemption of the human race. Listen, the virgin birth is a mystery, no doubt. But it is a mystery that is grounded in the confession that God is the creator who creates everything. The Christian and Jewish conviction is that God is the author of life. Nothing is self-existent or a brute fact. All is gift and miracle from God. And so here, over the womb of Mary, the author of life broods again, and the result is biological, physical, and human life. Now, don't misunderstand. This is just another little point in passing. You know, when, when you think of, of Jesus, don't think like Thor, Ragnarok, you know? You know, Stan Lee in his comics, he wanted to create a human that would be more powerful than anyone else. And so what did he do? Uh, he created a, uh, a god. That's what Thor was. It was like a man god. Jesus is not like a part amalgamation of God and man. Jesus is full and true divinity while at the same time being full and true humanity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And his divinity in no way compromises his humanity and his humanity no way mitigates against his divinity. He is fully God and fully man brought together in the one person of Jesus. And that is good Christology. But let's just move on. So Mary hears this word and she responds as a model of faith. Look at what she says. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, when mother, when you, you, when you find yourself in times of trouble, mother Mary comes to you speaking words of wisdom, let it be, you know. This is nothing if not a word of wisdom. How do we respond to the promise of God? Let it be. Mary, in this moment, has agency and freedom. And she chooses to trust the promise and surrender to the unique purpose of God for her life. She says, in essence, I surrender my life, my body, my future into your hands. Let it be according to your word. But now, let's just be honest, her life is gonna get very, very complicated. She says yes, she chooses surrender. But sometimes after you say yes to God, things get more complicated than they were before. Has anybody ever found that to be true? She's a young woman from a small town where people talk and now she's gonna have an out of, of, of wedlock pregnancy on her hands and word is gonna travel fast. And what will Joseph say? And what are her parents gonna do? And, 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 
And Mary has heard from the angel about her relative Elizabeth, who we learned about last week, the mother of John the Baptist. And so notice what she does. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And when she entered the house of Zechariah, she greeted Elizabeth. And look what happens next. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your worm's womb. And and no no doubt Mary is thinking, I've always looked up to Elizabeth and Zechariah the priest, you know, Elizabeth, you know, the daughter of Aaron and they are godly and walking blameless. And here Elizabeth is treating Mary like royalty. And she says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She, she, that's a subtle dig to her husband, Zachariah, by the way. Blessed is she who believed the promise because you know what happened to Zachariah. He didn't believe and he went mute, but that wasn't so bad anyway. But anyway, but Mary's just thinking, What? You know, here's this nobody from Nowheresville who's now become arguably the most well-known, well-loved woman in the history of the human race. You know, sorry, all you Swifties, it's not Taylor Swift. It is Mary. And now Mary, in light of all of this grace, explodes in praise. And look at what she says. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. You know, we think a lot about how God used the body of Mary to bring the new life of Jesus into the world. But notice in the text, God doesn't just use the body of Mary. He uses the word and the voice of Mary. And notice she speaks in what she says. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. You know, here Mary, the humble peasant, Mary is now the one who is bearing the very life of the world in her womb. So she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble of state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Notice she begins by testifying to the grace of God on her behalf. For he who has done my, who, who he was mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And then after testifying to the great grace and mercy of God in her life and showing her this gift, Mary gets all punk rock on us, and, and the, the note in the song shifts. And she becomes kind of, you know, she, she, you know, before the clash and the Ramones and Green Day, there was Mary sticking it to the man. And look at what she says next. She says, by the way, Mary is speaking these words we learned in chapter one underneath the nose of King Herod and underneath uh, the, the gaze in chapter two of Lord Caesar. And listen to what she says. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates like Mary and like the shepherds and later like Lazarus, who's just 
at the gate of the rich man. He has shown mercy. He has lifted those of humble estate. And he is, this kingdom, something new is happening in the world. God is humbling the proud and he is exalting the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. And then our song closes with a celebration of God's covenant faithfulness and loyalty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You know, what, what, what comes to your mind when you think of Mary? This week, I was listening to this brilliant uh, sermon from uh, a teacher, uh, a writer whose name is Dr. Amy Orr Ewing. And she was talking about Mary, and she said something that was just fascinating to me. She, she, she said, you know, um, she said, in, in our depictions of Mary, Mary is often mute, and she's quiet. And she said, I, I once played Mary in, a, in, a, in a, one of those Christmas pageants. And she said, I just sat there quiet, by the stable. I didn't have any lines. But I want you to notice in our text that Mary is given a voice and Mary has some lines. And the song Mary sings is significant because it is in a nutshell what is gonna be built out about this new kingdom breaking in. And Luke's gonna put the rest of it on display in the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Right here is just in noose, in a nutshell, in miniature. It is what is at, at the very heart of the kingdom of God. And so in our text, we, we are learning some things about the kingdom of God. And, and I want you just to note a few things, and we're gonna come back to our desire to be noticed in just a minute. And notice, what I, notice how the story closes. It says, and Mary remained with her about three months, and they, re, they re, then returned to her home. Of course, the story isn't gonna end just there. It's, get, it's gonna get more complicated. But I wanna just stand back now, and I wanna just highlight a few things we learn about the kingdom of God from Mary. As Mother Mary comes to us speaking words of wisdom, let's listen to what she has to say. Number one, the first thing that we see in Mary about the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom that is being birthed into the world in Jesus is a kingdom where peasant, low status, often neglected and forgotten women are given a voice. It is a kingdom where women are lifted and given a voice. You know, in the first century, th this is stunning because the first century, it was a man's world. The testimony of women was not accepted in a court of law. In other words, the voice of women were not valued like the voice of men. Uh, they couldn't be trusted. You know, they're just women after all. You know, I mean, this was how they thought. It was the headspace they lived in. It was a very patriarchal society. And yet in this society, in this world, this new kingdom coming to birth through the womb of Mary is a kingdom where the status of women will be lifted and they will be given a voice. It's interesting, you know, um, in the Gospel of Luke, it opens here with Mary announcing the kingdom, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It ends with Jesus being raised. The first witnesses of the resurrection are women. And they are commissioned by Jesus to go and to bring this good news to the disciples. And then um, 
the book of Acts, Luke's second volume opens and it talks about the spirit of the living God being poured out on all flesh in this new kingdom. And in this new kingdom, one of the first signs that the spirit of God is being poured out on all flesh is that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your male servants as well as your female servants, servants would be the low class, peasant class, the spirit will be poured out on all flesh and they will prophesy, they will speak God's word forth. In other words, in the new age of the kingdom, women are lifted and given a voice. You know, the New Testament is really like, it's unlike any other document from the first century. And, um, and, and there's been a lot written about this. You know, um, there's a, a really brilliant scholar from Baylor University whose name is Rodney Stark. And he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And in that book, he explores uh, this question, how was it that Christianity went from being this uh, group on the, you know, very small messianic movement on the fringes of Jewish society even, to become the dominant force in Western civilization that ultimately overtook paganism? And he said, there's a lot of reasons for it. But he said, one of them is that Christianity and the gospel, wherever it went, conferred a status on women that was unknown in the Greco-Roman world, and it lifted them, and women were entering into the churches in droves. And you know, wherever the gospel has gone, it has, and it's been faithfully preached, and it has, it has been faithfully embodied, the status of women is lifted. And women are valued and cherished. And so number one, in the kingdom of Jesus, and we see this with Mary, peasant women, those who according to the kingdoms of this world are low status or low class, they are lifted and they are given a place and a voice. But I want you to see something else. In the kingdom of Jesus, not only are women lifted and given a voice, but all those who are unnoticed are finally seen. You know, Luke has a particular interest throughout his gospel in building out the, the song of Mary and showing this theme. Luke is constantly highlighting how Jesus is going to those who other people don't notice or who are left out or who are, are ignored or, or looked down upon. And Jesus is constantly bringing them in because this is what the kingdom of God does. You know, scholars have noted this interesting feature uh, of, of uh, Mary and Zechariah. You know, if you, if you look in uh, the story we looked at last week, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and the announcement of the birth of Jesus, and you lay these two stories side by side, and you start lining up kind of like they, they run parallel. And what's interesting is um, there, there's so many commonalities uh, between Zechariah and Mary's visit from the angel Gabriel. But they are different in at least this way. I mean, there, there's, 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 there's actually several key differences. Namely, John the Baptist is gonna be the pointer. Jesus Christ will be the point. John the Baptist will prepare the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But the, the, the commonality or, or the difference is this. Uh, Zachariah and Mary sit at different ends of the social status spectrum in Jewish society. Zechariah was a priest. 
He was older, he was a male. He would have been noticed and revered and honored and considered a VIP, a very important person, you know? Mary would have been ignored, overlooked and considered unimportant. And I think what, what Luke is trying to show us and what Mary is proclaiming to us in this song is simply this, that the kingdom of God that is bringing that is being birthed in the womb of Mary, that is coming into the world in Jesus, is a kingdom that is for everyone. It is a kingdom for those of low status, like Mary, and those of high status, like Zechariah, and it is a kingdom for everyone in between. In other words, this kingdom is not characterized by the typical favoritisms of this age. In this kingdom, the highest honor is given to a young woman with no social standing at all. You know, in the kingdoms of the world, you might be ignored or unnoticed, but in this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, you know, where, where the present kingdoms may not have much, much use for you because of disability or age or looks or education or lack thereof or whatever, but not in the kingdom of Jesus. In the kingdom of Jesus, those who feel unnoticed and unknown and unseen are noticed and known and seen. Those who are left out are brought in, welcomed in. And in, in the kingdom of God, you, you, might, you might be somebody who's left out by the kingdoms of this world, but you may actually become the very model of faith for all of us to follow. Because like Mary, you have learned how to live into this word of surrender, let it be to me according to your word. And, and listen, let me just say this. This is not because in the kingdom of Jesus, you know, Jesus is kind of about charity and uh, the kingdoms of this world are harsh. And so, you know, uh, there's a lot of worthy people in the kingdoms of this world because they've climbed to the very top of the social status ladder. They got the education, they have the power, they got the promotion, they got the job, they got the skills, they got the looks or whatever. And so, oh, but, but these poor other people, we're gonna have charity on them. It's not, that, it's, it, it's not a matter of charity, it's a matter of, of, of grace. In the kingdom of God, things look very different. God views all of humanity as objects of his infinite and eternal love. All humans are broken and in need of that love. And listen, let me just say this. That on one level, you know, there's, there, there, there's something very human and very understandable about when you do something impressive that you want other people to see it. And part of that, there's almost a humility to that. It's almost a way of saying, look, you know, I, I am not a person of my own making. I'm interdependent and I need others in my life to help me know who I am. And, and, and speaking words of affirmation and praise over children or friends or parents or neighbors or whatever, sisters and brothers, you know, that can be really good and really helpful for people and it, it, it feeds into human well-being. It can be a very, very good thing but it can also become a very destructive thing if it becomes your ultimate and final thing. In other words, if your desire and your need and my need to be noticed, and I have a need to be noticed and admired, people, do you? Like if that starts becoming a driving reality, the, the ultimate thing in your life, 
Like, it will destroy you. Just the person who's calling right now will tell you. (laughs) But if you root your identity and your worth in the notice of God, in the yes of God, it can free you from that. You know, part, part of the problem with always trying to be noticed and, and put yourself, is you start putting out in front of other people a false self, a, a fabricated self, a curated self. And though they keep praising you, it's not really doing the trick because you know that's not the full you. But God sees you all the way down. He knows you better than anyone else in the world. And he, he sees and he loves you. You know, in the therapist's office, one of the greatest gifts a therapist can give you is to be a witness to who you are as you speak your truth and your pain. They see you, they hear you. And, and listen, here is the eternal truth is that God sees and knows and loves us and nothing can separate us from his love and we can dig our roots into that firm foundation and when we do it can free us from all of the pursuits of of needing the approval of people as being some sort of ultimate in our life. And here's one more thing. What we see in Mary is that the kingdom of Jesus is a free gift of grace. You know, this, this grace. Greetings, oh favored one. You know, it, was Mary like the, the most godly woman to ever walk the face of the planet? Did, was God like looking to and fro from all the earth and going, who is the most righteous one? Like, is that why God chose her? No. God's free grace move toward a peasant who, who in or of herself was unworthy of such mercy and grace so that Mary might be a symbol and a sign pointing to all of us in every human life where the, the new life of the kingdom is born. A kingdom where you can be known and seen is a kingdom that can only be received by grace. And you know, Mary teaches us the proper response It is, let it be. Yes, I will receive this gift. You know, you might might be here visiting with us and maybe you've been invited by a friend and maybe you're kind of new to Christianity and you're like, where does all of, where does this whole Christian journey begin? Listen, it doesn't begin when you start working your way up to being a better person, to make yourself pleasing to God. That's not... The Christian journey begins when you open up your heart and your your life and your hands and you receive this gift for what it is, a gift, and you say, let it be for me. I will receive your, your love as a free gift, God, through Jesus Christ. And you receive this free gift and that reception, freely received, will change everything.